0: You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Srivastava Prakash.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to this episode of Market Champions. I wanted to take this moment to ask you, to leave a rating and a review, if you're on iTunes or Spotify, really helps my podcast grow. And it helps me to keep bringing on the top guests in the industry. So thank you so much. In 1966, Charles Cruz and Lee Adams composed a musical. A dialogue in that musical describes the main character, Superman, as, and I quote, faster than a speeding bullet, and more powerful than a locomotive," end quote. Some people would use the same dialogue to describe recent actions by central banks. But today, we have a man here today to assure us that that isn't so. The well-known musical has its title that's used in many different ways on which I will put a twist when introducing my guest today. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's the legendary Emil Kalinowski, Emil, Please excuse my terrible attempt at trying to mimic one of your extremely amazing intros. I apologize, but thanks for being on the show and welcome to Market Champions. Thank you
0: very much for the introduction. It's the best introduction I've ever got. It's the only introduction I've ever got, but it's still fantastic. I love it, so I appreciate it very much. Yes, I do take too much liberty. They say it's poetic license well, my license should be revoked by some literary authority with my introductions to the podcast. Uh, but I try to mix it up. I try to make it sometimes serious and sometimes absurd. And the, uh, the last show that I did with Jeff Snyder, who I believe was a guest with you as well, we, we discussed 1980s television shows. And so you can count on this introduction starting out very seriously about plot, character and setting before it descends into farce. <laughs> for for those that are new, that are watching the show and have no idea who I am, I promise the introduction is two minutes long, there's some music, and then we get to the real star of the show, Jeff Snyder, and the education. So yep. it's not the worst thing in the world.
1: So uh, my first question was, could you talk a little bit about your background, you know, your journey in finance, and how you got to where you are today, and you know what exactly you know you focus on doing, especially in the mining's and metals uh, field.
0: Hmm. Hmm. I wish it was very exciting, but it's not terribly exciting. I went to a average school called Arizona State University, and I I took finance because the economics degree was for smart people, and so I stuck with finance. Eventually, I found my way through different companies, like in the finance departments, doing budgeting and things like that. But I was always reading somewhere here. I have a magazine article by The Economist, right? So I'm always reading The Economist. I'm always listening to interesting radio shows and podcasts. So I wanted to do more with my finance degree. And I don't know. You didn't how study English. <laughs> I loved English. I loved the literature. That was my favorite. Uh non core courses that I was taking in college. And then outside of school, I was reading as much as I could uh, to which my mom would complain, you read too much, which is not bad. Everyone in my generation was being beat up and doing drugs and things like that. So I thought it wasn't too bad to do, you know, uh, reading. And anyways, I eventually found my way to the Cayman Islands and, and what happened. Uh, I, I fell into a metals and mining industry company where my job is to research what's not only happening with the metals that we're investing in, but the context of those metals. Uh, for example, copper and nickel, a few years ago were just copper and nickel, but now they're being seen as green metals, right? because they can power the green revolution. So my job is to research that context, and, And and that's why I love talking about monetary matters, because we happen to be in a moment in our collective global history where the monetary order as it exists is unstable. It's shaking. It's been like this before. And in those points in time, precious metals played an important role and the monetary order changed. So that's kind of my job is to research, write, read, and uh, that's it.
1: You know, and uh, sort of your profile picture on Twitter is it's a gold coin. So now are you sort of like a secret gold bug, a secret inflationist?
0: (laughs) I'm uh, no, not secret gold bug. I'm uh, I'm out of the closet and I might as well come out right now here live on your show that, yes, I am pro gold. I think anybody owning gold would be a wise investment at this kind of moment in history. There are other periods in time when everything is functioning rather well and the existing social order is in good shape. You are a young man. I'm also a young man, but maybe not as young as you. No, I'm trying to make a joke. I'm, I'm an old man, uh, but you're a young man. So, but you've interviewed lots of people and they tell you, this is unusual, what we're going through since 2007. It's unusual, it's unnatural. There are moments when it won't be like this and therefore owning gold in those times, not, not critical, but uh, during these particular times it's, it's important, I think. So, yes, I do recommend gold because I, I feel we are in a kind of a disinflationary uh, decade that we just passed, but maybe the Corona changed some things and maybe we'll be, switching over to an inflationary future, I think eventually will be anyhow. But maybe 2020 marked the end of the beginning and the beginning of the end.
1: Now, why don't you t- take something that you just said, uh, which was sort of a changing social order. So now, could, could you go into well, what you mean by that? Um, you know, I'd like to remind you that stock markets are at all-time highs. So, uh, you know, the social order right now is—it's <laughs> pretty good. So, so could you could you explain, uh, you know, what that means? Well, the, are you a Game of Thrones fan by any chance? Uh, no, but I'm guessing some of our listeners may be. So, go ahead. How about
0: did you ever read uh, Isaac Asimov's uh, The Foundation series? No. <laughs> no problem. Uh, have you ever come across? This is my last one, I promise. Uh, The gods of the copy book headings. It's a poem by Kipling.
1: No, I've read other Kipling poems, but not this one.
0: What all three of those have in common is that uh, they're about social orders coming to an end and a new one coming in. It's perfectly natural, except that we as humans, we don't think that history happens to us. It usually happens to other people, usually in the past. But every few generations, there's a new social order, a new economic order that comes into comes into force because the one that was established before was established so long ago. Nobody really knows why we should still stick to it, why we should still follow those rules. And the last one that was implemented around the world was after the Second World War. And That generation has passed, and now there's nobody around anymore saying, well, why are we still following these rules? These rules don't make sense for today's age. And so people want to leave this order. The institutions that were established four generations ago aren't functioning well anymore. Things are breaking, but we can't seem to find our way to a new order. No one is there that's proposing a new system, a new social contract between government the wealthy the average household and businesses it's we don't hear those proposals and therefore we've been struggling but it's the point is from those novels and the uh the poem i i mentioned it's supposed to take quite a long time uh the fourth turning i don't know if any of your guests have discussed it but the fourth turning estimates that it takes one generation um a recent american author george friedman He's very well thought of in the geopolitical uh, field. And he just wrote a book called The Storm Before the Calm. And he also talks about that idea that it's gonna take the rest of this decade to transition to a new social contract. So yes, stock markets are at all time highs, but dissatisfaction, uh, wealth inequality, unhappiness, uh, fertility rates, deaths of despair, economic growth per capita. These are all terrible at ugly, ugly levels. And uh, the longer it continues, the angrier people will be. Not just in North America, but we see it in South America. We see it in Europe. So it's a global situation. At least that's my perspective, but what about you? Have have you seen that? Is that what you sense in Toronto, in Canada?
1: Well, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go so far as saying the entire social order is about to change. But again, I haven't read the books that you've read. And, you know, I've uh, not read, you know, the book by Asimov or the poem by Kipling. So I think it's better I take a look at those. And I want to bring the spotlight back to you and ask. (laughs) (laughs) On to you, please. I'm very
0: impressed by your show, what you've accomplished. That's fantastic. Thank As you. No doubt many of your guests have told you. Thank you. They weren't doing anything when they were 16. So we can't wait to see where you're going to be in a few years. You're going to be a media sensation. I hope. It'll be fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Congratulations. Keep it up. I can't wait to watch uh, over the years how you, how you progress. So, And I'll be very, very happy to be able to tell people, yeah, I was on the show. That was episode one.
1: Thirty nine, one 140. 140, yeah, yes. <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, so uh, you know, going back to our uh, discussion on the social order, uh, do you have any predictions on, or do you have any thoughts on, you know, how it's going to play out? Because if you sort of, you know, ask the ask a normal person, you know, who's paying attention to the news, uh, the one thing that they will notice is sort of either, you know, people are moving more and more to the left. Uh, in terms of politics and economics. So sort of the rise of democratic socialists or social democrats, as you like to call them. And, you know, or there's people moving more to the extreme and, you know, moving more, moving further and further right. And, you know, you see the rise of sort of far right conservatives, that kind of thing. So do you have any predictions on how this is going to play out? Are we going to see a civil war? I know you have already made me scared. So uh, it's better I ask these questions. (laughs)
0: Well, you should definitely not be listening to me. What I'm saying, uh, I'm reacting to what I've learned from others who have thought deeply about these issues. And Neil Howe, uh, who re- co-authored The Fourth Turning with William Strauss, he raises the possibility of civil war in the United States. And so when you say civil war in the United States, people say <laughs> that's absurd, it's ridiculous. But uh a measured, calm individual with a long-term historical perspective raises that possibility as a remote, but plausible under certain circumstances, at least in this kind of moment when the institutions aren't functioning, aren't responding. Um, but we're a long way away from that. But uh, what do I predict will happen? I predict that things will continue to get worse. The established politicians will continue to offer tinkering tweaks to the existing order as opposed to proposing an entirely new social contract and and so it'll continue to get worse until somebody comes to the fore that offers a vision and unfortunately sometimes that comes with uh, 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 comes in two pieces like a vision this is what we're going to achieve and we're not being able to achieve it because of those people so that's you know that's pretty often how that happens unfortunately but it doesn't have to be that way but the key the key to get everyone unified once again is to create a crisis not create to experience a crisis as a society a searing hot crisis in which all the individual pieces are melted together into one cohesive soul soul whole that survives, conquers, and emerges unified, it sounds crazy, and yet that's what we see repeatedly across Anglo-American history, so um, that's that's sort of what I'm seeing, right or left, I don't know, both depending on which country you're in, which region, both will be trying to offer solutions, um, hopefully, and then hopefully one can kind of melt the two together, offer some sort of perspective from this and that party, we shall see.
1: Got it. So uh, I wanted to move towards uh, uh, some of your thoughts on metals as a whole. So You know, you and Jeff Snyder, you've sort of worked on this overall disinflationary or deflationary thesis. You know, the economy as a whole is not improving. And, you know, sort of the core point is that the central banks, regardless of all the money printer go burr memes that we see, you know, they're not actually printing money. And so could you talk a little bit about how this affects, uh, you know, the thesis that you're working on with Jeff, how this sort of affects the mining industry, both during and after it plays out? Because I'm, you know, specifically interested in your views on copper and silver, because you know they've got their individual uses. I think you also mentioned that you know copper, as it's used especially in, uh, you know, in sort of green energy, and you know silver has a lot of industrial uses as well. So you know, I'd like you to talk talk about that.
0: Sure, sure. Well, Jeff Snyder, who uh, who's my partner on a podcast and yeah. television or YouTube show that we do called Making, Making Sense. Sense. Yeah, it's a. Uh, Wait, did I forget it... that
1: in the introduction? Excuse me. Did I forget? Did I? That... I, no, I, did I, I think did. I forgot that. I'm sorry.
0: That's okay. Your introduction was better than the professional ones I go to where they say, oh, Yours a are the best. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. That's right. So it's Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production with Jeff Snyder. And I'm on the show too. And Jeff has really worked hard in trying to understand how central banking works so hard that he reads all the transcripts, all the speeches for years from decades ago. And he has a real sense of how well the system works. And basically, essentially, is that the central banks are central in name only. They don't actually create the money that makes the world go around. And the money that makes the world go around is credit, credit extended by the private bank. The central bank creates a kind of money it's a money, uh, much like a nickel or a quarter. You know, it's that's a money. It's not as super exciting or useful or flexible as a credit card, though. That's also money, and so they hope by creating this thing called bank reserves, which only goes is only really useful for banks, and by flushing the banks with bank reserves, not all of them, as we talked about in our last show, the bank reserves are siloed in the biggest banks right. but they're not spread well enough across the whole system even though even though there's there the system seems to have a huge amount of bank reserves it's only in specific banks even those banks are they're not, they're looking around since 2007 and they say we don't like the way this economy looks we don't want to extend credit to the global economy and even though credit is rising you, if you look back through time, back to the 70s or even before, you would see that credit was money was growing at this kind of a rate. And then ever since then, it's been positive, but very meek, right. very meek. And therefore, the economy, global economy has been struggling because banks don't want to extend their balance sheets. Here's the best example. Before 2007, banks wanted to grow their balance sheets grow, to become bigger, acquire other banks. That was the name of the game. Uh, After 2007, many, most European and North American banks, I'm thinking of the American ones though specifically, shrank or grew much, much more slowly. Last year, I remember in January, the UBS CEO admonished the European banks for trying to quote, shrink to greatness. So if banks are shrinking, we have less money as a society, as a global economy to function. And the central banks, despite all their efforts over the last 13 years, have only been creating this sort of inert money as Jeff and I often refer to it, a kind of like a laundromat token. That's money, it's money, it's useful right. to specific people in a specific area. If I give you a billion laundromat tokens, you would work hard to convert that into economic dollars and right. money. Um, but the banks, they're like, you know, we're going to keep the laundromat tokens because it's too risky out there. So anyhow, that's what the central banks do. And therefore, for the metals and mining industry, it's been a tough going since 2011. It's been more disinflationary and deflationary because... There's not as much credit going out into the world, not as much money supply as before. And therefore, the prices have been generally falling since 2011-12. More recently, they've started to come back up. And, and, well, we could talk about this, but I'm going to answer your copper and silver questions. But I think that might be different because what might have been new in 2020 was that banks got back in the money creation game because governments told them to. Politicians, not central banks, politicians seeking re-election, guaranteed government, no, right. the government guaranteed loans that private banks made, bank loan schemes. And this may be something new. This may have potential. If the politicians realize, wow, I can send money to people who will vote for me hmm, and without raising the national debt because the <laughs> debt will be off balance sheet. It'll be a contingent right. liability. It won't be on my balance sheet. It won't be on Canada's balance sheet. It'll be on Toronto Dominion's balance sheet because right. they will be extending the loans and we will be guaranteeing them so far. They're feeling their way around it. We'll see if they take off with this. Is I can go now to copper and silver, but, Anything I said there that you wanted to go on about, talk about, or no?
1: Uh, you know, we'll get to that in terms of like the next segment. So you can All go right. I
0: didn't want to dominate and co- talk and talk. Uh, gold, no, not gold and silver, copper and silver. So copper, it has it has electric. It's primarily an electric metal, right? That's so much of it goes into electricity, uh, but also uh, construction in China is very important there. But it's this electrical conductivity of copper that makes it so appealing to the green revolution. Now, copper is a gigantic market, gigantic. right? And so the green revolution is only starting to grow in this gigantic pool. And so it'll be a little bit of time before copper is really feeling the effects of the green revolution. Cobalt, for example, much smaller market, that's feeling the effect of the green revolution immediately, right away. Mm -hmm. Silver, big market, about 10% of uh, silver goes towards photovoltaic cells, which is a fancy word for solar panels, Uh, but it's also being used in... uh, a little bit in nuclear power right. and, oh goodness, I forgot another one, electric vehicles. In actual vehicles, it's being, it's starting to grow. So if the automobile industry takes off and it's very focused on electrification, we'll see more silver there. But nickel is another one that's very important. The batteries that so many of our cars, electric cars will likely be using are heavily based on nickel. And nickel is a much smaller market than copper or silver in terms of the proportion that will be required soon from the green revolution. So copper, sure, silver, yeah. Uh, cobalt and nickel, even sooner, smaller markets, bigger impact whenever the green revolution comes, a few years, I suppose. Got
1: it. And I want to stick with copper for a minute. Um- you know, a lot of people depend on what they call Dr. Copper to sort of tell the state of the economy. And if you see what happened to copper since March, it's gone up, you know, it's gone up quite a lot. Um, I was looking at a chart yesterday, went from somewhere in the twos to I think it's three fifties right now. So, you know, that's a, that's a pretty big increase. So I wanted to ask you, you know, a metals expert, you know, what's going on, especially, you know, with your knowledge of what's going on in the monetary system, you know, that other you know, things aren't all right. Now, there is no reflation. The economy is not actually getting better. So, what do you talk about? What's actually going on in copper?
0: Well, what's Let's see, the economy the- is getting better, but not super fantastic better that perhaps would would uh, what would the word be? Back up or vindicate? Confirm. Like what was it? I'm sorry. Vindicate. Vin- yes. Exactly. So copper, I would say copper's price has gotten ahead of itself. Things are better than last year. There seems to be a reflation. China, the biggest copper user in the world, did focus their economic recovery on fixed asset investment versus on the consumer side. Most of the world supported its consumers. China supported its real estate sector and fixed asset, you know, infrastructure projects. So that helped copper. Copper was also helped along because the Chinese state bureau bought a lot of copper. They don't tell me anymore how much copper they buy. They say it's a state secret. Okay, honestly, it is a state secret. So no one really knows, but industry analysts have estimated, they've put some guesstimates around it. And it seems pretty substantial when you look at it from a bottom-up basis, so when you count all the widgets, all the pipes, all the electrical wire demand in China, you count it all up, and then you count how much copper actually went in, there's a big discrepancy, they say. And so a re- unusually large amount of copper in any one particular year uh, was probably set aside by the Chinese, kind of like the United States has this oil reserve where they set barrels aside for a rainy day one day. So I would say copper is reacting appropriately to improvements in the economy, but there's also the fact that it's perhaps more focused on China. Uh, Also the Chinese government was providing non-economic demand that likely won't be here this year, very likely won't be here this year and therefore I would say seemingly a little bit ahead of itself but i'm no good at timing copper prices or any other kind of prices uh that's just my general sense of it uh that's that's what i would say
1: got it so i wanted to now move to uh, more of sort of the monetary uh, side of things and ask you some questions on the monetary system. So I wanted to start off by asking you, if you had to try, do you think you could make the case, the mainstream, uh, you know, the the mainstream guys on Twitter, the mainstream, you know, fund managers make, you know, all this QE uh, goes into stocks, commodities, and other assets, and, you know, sort of articulate the process step by step, you know, is there, is there any way that you could talk about how QE actually ends up, you know, boosting asset prices at all? I think it's
0: mostly sentiment that the central bank will be there to backstop the financial system, that the institutions are too big to fail, and -hmm. therefore where they lend the hedge funds, the speculators, that they will be supported. Um, What else would I say? I wouldn't say that there's some sort of direct link where bank reserves are being taken, translated into dollars, and then used in stock market speculation. I would say it's more sentimental, more sentiment driven, but I would also say that the banks are given these bank reserves, therefore they have the liquidity they need, and then it's a risk return proposition. And where should they invest? Should they invest in the real economy where demand is uncertain, wages are not growing too well, therefore and consumption will likely be uh, questionable, where consumers are generally paying down their debts, reducing credit. So that's not really, uh, what would, you would know, what's the word? Uh, encouraging, encouraging environment and not an encouraging backdrop. And would I suggest also that that social contract is missing? I believe that people sense that it's not clear what the rules of the road will be tomorrow, The rules may change rapidly. What if someone very conservative or someone very liberal came into power? Maybe very strong government intervention will be the order of the day. And therefore making long-term economic investment seems risky. If you don't know what the rules of the road are, if you feel there may be a social change soon, if, and then plus the end demand is not there. per capita GDP growth rates for around the world are dreadful, dreadful. So you have a lot of reserves. You have this liquidity. Maybe putting it into the stock market would make more sense. I suppose you can see that with the decisions that businesses themselves make by buying back their own shares, instead of investing heavily in infrastructure and fixed assets. I think that's the sense that we've been seeing. So. I would say that's that's the reason that uh, we're seeing these stock markets rally is that people are putting money into where they can make money, not necessarily for economic purposes.
1: And you know, to talk about you know what you just said about uh, you know, P- uh, you know, it's too risky to lend out there. Now there, are, I believe in big debt crises. Um, Ray Dalio has talked about how credit actually makes things better and, you know, an ex- sorry, an extension of credit makes things better. You know, this making things better leads to another extension of credit in a reflexive loop. And, you know, George Soros has talked about this in his uh, incredible book, The Alchemy of Finance as well. So do you have any thoughts on that? Do you agree with that view? Because usually what their stance is that, you know, a bank sort of, uh, if, say, if say someone lends credit, you know, the the credit uh, the person who borrowed money is probably going to go spend that money, and one man's spending is another man's income. So you know, so you know, someone else is going to earn that spent money, and you know, when incomes go up, asset values go up because the the price of assets is calculated based of the income that it's able to produce. So uh, and you know, when the, when asset values go up, it's these assets that are used as collateral for lending. So when asset values go up. The collateral value is going up, and you know when this collateral value goes up, that leads to a further extension of credit, and the cycle uh, sort of starts off uh, once again. So, you no, know, a lot of uh, so from what I understand, it it usually just takes sort of you know one uh, I guess uh, sort of one kick to get it to get it started, and you know this process can start continuing. But you know, I wanted to hear your thoughts on you know what I just said.
0: I think it just depends on the era and the country and the system. Uh, in certain times, that makes sense. Uh, in others, it Not won't so work. Uh, and I think it's during those moments when you know what the long-term lay of the land is, where these sort of credit, uh, oh, beautiful beautiful cycles. What was it, the, the phrase that he used? The beautiful
1: deal leveraging. But uh, I think that was sort of to describe uh, mm. yeah, <laughs> something well, else. <laughs>
0: Very well, very well. I think uh, uh, Soros
1: call it a reflexive loop, so let's just go with that. <laughs> so these,
0: these, uh, these bull runs are good, and they're helpful, and they create advancements in technology. Uh, perhaps they set off globalization, a relinking of the cultures, transportation, communication. Wonderful things, wonderful things. They get too far, and then it resets backwards, and we start over again. The question is, uh, every once in a while, though, it seems to build up, and that seems to be what Minsky was writing about, is that, yes, we have these cycles, and they're healthy, but they seem to build on each other until you get to some sort of large systemic reset. So I think we have gone through our normal sort of cyclical recessions and now we've reached that point where we're at the systemic reset where we're stuck and we're not able to create the credit that we want to that would be healthy that would be useful uh so so you know you know the funding the new technologies i read a book by uh richard vig recently uh it was called a brief history of doom it was great short snappy very educational and uh They talked about how the credit was directed to real estate and industries and railroads and communication, but it would go too far. There would be a crash. And then you would just have to start over, I suppose. So I guess what's, it just depends. Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. And we're just humans here on earth and uh, we're going to have to do the best we can to survive these things.
1: I'd like to ask you, um. You know, working with Jeff Snyder, have you, have you built your own indicator, in, indicators to indicate liquidity conditions or to, liquid, to indicate you know, what's going to happen next uh, or anything like that at all?
0: Well, Jeff is great at that and he writes about it all the time at Alhambra Partners. So he, he lists a lot of them very frequently. I wish I had one.
1: You print them?
0: I'm back. We could have gone to commercial there. Okay, so yeah, he lists a number of them. Uh, bond yields, inflation expectations, uh, short-term rate expectations in Euro dollar futures, repo rates, swap spreads, positions of dealers with collateral. How much collateral are they holding on their books? The US dollar, trade exports. Um, there's also several lines in the in banks central bank um, balance sheets where they talk about how much do foreign uh, institutions official institutions hold of U.S. Treasury securities, how much are they asking for from the Federal Reserve. So these are great liquidity measures that tell us what kind of condition the the monetary system might be in. But as Jeff often mentions, this is very difficult, very difficult stuff because it's all in the shadows. It grew up, it came to being outside because of extreme regulation. After the second world war, uh, the debts were at extreme levels and the countries of the world decided we need to implement a policy of financial repression whereby we will inflate away our debts slowly And therefore, that means we need to keep a real tight leash on the banking system, on international finance, so that we can keep savings here, because savings would say, (laughs) I'm not staying around, I'm not paying for your debts, get out of here. So they had to keep the savings here, regulations, restrictions, taxes, capital controls, and then they would slowly inflate away, keep inflation rates above the rates of return, right? in the United States, there was something famous called Regulation Q, which would cap where interest rates could be paid on deposits at banks, and then inflation was kept here. That's just an example. Anyhow, after the Second World War, financial repression kept uh, money in a pool. Inflation whittled it away, but but banks in Britain, presumably, because we don't know, quite know, they said... This this stinks, all right? It's 10 years now after the war and we are still having to pay for this. Why don't we work outside the system? And so they started doing some things outside of the regulated system. And then it came to the attention of the authorities and the authorities had a decision to make. In Europe, the authorities said, no, no, we're not gonna allow this. But in Britain, they said, you know what? We will allow it but your dealings have to be with non-British citizens. It has to be outward-facing. But we won't, we won't really, we'll, it'll be a light regulation. Know what you're doing. We're not coming to your rescue. And so this Euro dollar international financing system grew outside of regulation, in the shadows, offshore, Gibraltar, the Cayman Islands, the City of London, where else? Liechtenstein, Luxembourg, Hong Kong, Singapore outside of the main regulated institutions, dealing with outside customers. And so it was so hard to regulate, keep track of. And then the authorities in charge, it it seemed like they weren't interested in actually looking into it very closely. And so this system exists outside of the authority of the central banks. And therefore it's very hard to measure what is happening. A bank extends a loan to another bank. It's over the counter. You and I are not privileged. They don't tell us about it. Right. Did they call you up? Did they tell you what they're doing? No. They didn't call me. They didn't call me. They didn't call the regulator. We don't know. It's all quarter. Maybe at the end of the quarter, at the end of the month, they have to report what they're doing maybe. Yeah. And then by then it's kind of cleaned up as to what's going on. So we have to sort of look at these measures Not directly measuring the system, but its effects on things that we can measure, like bond yields, inflation expectation, the euro dollar futures, how much central banks, foreign central banks are borrowing dollars from the Federal Reserve, that sort of thing.
1: This would make like a really, really good (laughs) novel. I think you should write it.
0: The good news is, I already have a title for it. Tell me if you've heard this one before. Making economics erotic. Yes, erogenous. Yes, yes,
1: yes, yes. Uh, Someone was asking, uh, you know, when those hats are coming out with uh, making economics erogenous again.
0: (laughs) They are being produced right now by Eurodollar Enterprises. They're working hard on it. We have several product lines in the works. We have the Clench 5000. We have the premium quality bathrobes. We have the second neck, neck brace. And uh, recently, oh, I can't say this, but it's uh, it's an illicit drug, but it's organic. And uh, so we'll be, it'll be on the website soon enough. <laughs> got it. All for central, all for economics.
1: Anything for economics.
0: <laughs> I got to make economics fun in some way. Jeff knows it in, in and out. He's very serious, very knowledgeable. I try to be a little bit absurd, a little bit of silliness and, uh, yeah. and uh,
1: I think you do a really good job at that. Uh, you know, making economics as a whole fun, you know, making the conversation for the tough fun. because I don't know how many people would be interested in listening to someone talk about you know, these obscure transactions that go on offshore, but you know, you make it really interesting and really exciting. So, yeah.
0: Well, thank you. That's very kind. That's very kind.
1: So uh, I, uh, I also wanted to ask you, uh, you know, you follow sort of the works of, you know, people like Brent Johnson, you know, Jeff Snyder, Steve Van Meter, you know, these guys are sort of, they're in the deflationary camp. All scoundrels. Camp. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, Diaz, they're sort of in the deflationary camp, but then you also have people like say Luke Roman, Russell Napier, who are on the inflationary camp. So do you have... What gentlemen,
0: of, each and every one of them, Gentlemen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh, what sort of your overall thesis do you think that one day the u.s dollar will be thrown off the banking system thanks to government backed uh lending inflation and you know inflation sorry government-backed lending like we saw uh in 2020 and then you know inflation will finally run hot
0: yeah that's that's always been my my uh outlook is that we're a disinflationary, deflationary, Brent Johnson, Jeff Snyder, uh, Van Meter outlook. We're in a depression. I believe it, I call it the silent depression. I say it's the third worldwide depression of the last 150 years. It began in 2007 and we're stuck in it. And there's no economic solution. There is no monetary solution. I believe the only solution is political. And that's where Mr. Mr. Groman and Mr. Napier come in. It's a political solution that will come one day. I don't know when. Again, fourth turning, winter is coming. Right. Uh, a Harry Seldon crisis, the gods of the copybook headings. One day we'll have a political resolution and that political resolution is most likely going to be an inflationary one because it is the least worst option. The other options are default on all the public and private debts. That would be that would uh, be very difficult on the economy, very disruptive and it would be an impediment to the re-election of our politicians who would be implementing these policies. Uh, we can't have that. <laughs> Uh, Number two, we could hyperinflate away. And the republics of Weimar, Venezuela, and Zimbabwe gave it a bad name. But as I learned from Mr. Napier, uh, France, after the Second World War, did an excellent, sophisticated job of inflating away their debts very quickly in five years. But again, it's a high-risk political decision, which... Uh, may put some politicians out of work, likely. And that, mm, you know, I don't see a lot of courage from the politicians I'm aware of. I know all the Canadian politicians are courageous. So I'm not saying anything there, but everywhere else. Therefore, option number three, financial repression, the slow inflation away of our debts seems to be the most likely policy. There are two other policies, growth, we're in a depression. We have been for thirteen years. That's the Van Meter Snyder. And uh, could you uh, actually talk
1: about? Could you explain why? Uh, you know, we are, or like how we've been in a depression? Because you know, if you take sort of, uh, you know, uh, if you sit down and look at sort of most of the economic numbers, have been pretty good. You know, we saw the greatest bull market ever. you saw, um, uh, we saw sort of uh, unemployment go all the way down to the threes. I know we saw inflation was a low and stable. Uh, So could you talk about how exactly, since 2007 we've actually been in a depression?
0: Absolutely, great question. The difference between a recession and depression is that a recession includes as part of the package, it's a two for one deal, the downturn and the upturn, the shock and the recovery, that's a recession. A depression is just the down, but uh, then the recovery is never really a recovery. You never get back to your pre-recession trend. You just have a reflation, you have positive numbers. And what a lot of people don't realize is that human society comes with positive numbers baked into it. Like when we look at, for example, transistor chips, right? It's Moore's law, it's supposed to be expanding you might know it better than I do. I think it's every one and a half years I don't or know. two. <laughs> it's supposed to double. Yeah. No, no, it's a, the number of transistors yeah. on a microchip is supposed to double every few years or every one and a half years. Same thing if you look at flight distance records, how long can you go on a single flight uh, without powering up? Um, all manner of human achievements are non-linear including economic growth. Right. That I'm sorry?
1: I said right, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so even if you have positive numbers, we've had positive growth since 2007, but it's been much, much less than the growth we had experienced with all the recessions since the Second World War. And, And that's what we're missing because there's no upside. There's no belief that we're gonna escape this because we keep having a crisis every few years. 2007, 2009, then in Europe, 2011, 2012, then across the emerging markets, 2014 through 2016 early, and then 2018 through 2020, we had another slowdown. So the depression, this is something James Rickards brings up often enough, is the lack of upside, the lack of hope, the lack of boom, the lack of acceleration, the surge that would come that doesn't mean all the numbers are terrible. You can have stock markets that are up. I took a look at the long depression that took place in the 19th century and the great depression in the 20th century. And I saw that the U.S. stock market rose during both depressions. We're seeing that again now. It's rising more than, then, than back then. Um, so you can see it. As for the unemployment rate, I would say that's a function of the missing labor force. At least in the United States, in other countries, I don't know if that is the case. You have a labor force that has shrunk; therefore, the unemployment rate is misleading. And uh, and uh, and I believe that's it. If I didn't answer something, let me know.
1: But usually, you know, when people think of depressions, they usually think of, say, the Great Depression. You know, long lines at soup kitchens, and you know, we see, you uh, know, <laughs> you know, we see tons of people out of work.
0: But we have lots of people out of work. We have lots of people that are not hungry because they I was talking like pre
1: COVID. So, like from 2007 to 2019, you know, most people would argue that, you know, it was pretty normal. You know, they had a job. They were able to, you know, so keep food on the table for the most part. Uh, you know, they were able to make their mortgage payments. They were able to take a vacation every, every year, every two years. So.
0: Well, I would uh, say that if you take a look at. Uh, kind of large scale, like a per capita GDP number, you would see that growth has been there, right. but it's been on track Lower. with what we saw in previous depressions around the world. So, yeah, I'm not saying there's no lines, growth, although we have. That's,
1: so you're saying like, you're not saying there's no growth, you're just saying, you know, it's a lot slower than what's supposed to be or what it usually is.
0: That's right. We're in the doldrums. If you go sailing and you're near the equator, you can get stuck in the doldrums, where it's just listless. There's no wind, and right. you're just floating, going nowhere. You're still alive, I guess. You're making progress, but it's miserable. Got it.
1: So I wanted and- to ask you, uh, what exactly are bank reserves? Uh, what are these things? That, you know, you got, uh, you know, in Making sense, your dollar university. You, you talk about how the Federal Reserve increases bank reserves. So what are bank reserves, and you know, can bank reserves be exchanged for like actual cash? Can you know someone wouldn't that just be uh, wouldn't that just be sort of going to the Fed and saying you know I'm selling these bank reserves and you know I'm getting I want it, I want cash for it instead. So
0: I like to think of them as a kind of a regulatory money so their money has different purposes and for buying things, but for banks, this kind of, this bank reserves allow them to make their balance sheet more flexible to extend loans into the private economy. If they have enough bank reserves, then the federal reserve says, or any central bank will say, you're in good shape, you're healthy. If there was ever a run, if your assets were ever impaired, if something went wrong, You have enough of these reserves, which represent a, what would they represent? They represent your ability to come to us to help you. And so if you have enough of them, then you're allowed to take more risk. So it's a kind of a money that's useful in trading, dealing with other banks, in buying some government debt, buying government debt if sometimes if the government wants you to if they'll they'll take your bank reserves sometimes but they I wouldn't think they would take just bank reserves because they too have to turn that around and then distribute it into the economy and their real economy doesn't use bank reserves for anything. so it's a regulatory relief, freedom mm-hmm. and the banks have a reasonable amount of it, but uh, the risk out there is too great for them to really go in face first no pants into the into the pool yelling cannonball no they, they don't want to do it
1: and you know the reserve requirement is at zero percent so you know through the basically the addition of reserves technically makes no sense other than you know the way it's used in expectation policy which is what you guys talk about in uh, in, in your podcast and you know one view that I've seen is that Warren Mosler who is Uh, sort of the MMT uh, MMT guy, one of the uh, biggest proponents of MMT. He wrote a book called, um, I think it's Soft Currency Economics 2 or something like that. Um, In that book, he, he mentions that banks usually lend first and then, you know, and then they borrow the reserves later as and when it's needed for accounting purposes. So do you agree with that view? And what are your thoughts on that?
0: You know, I saw an interview uh, with Mr. Mosler. Is that right? Did I say his name? Yeah, yeah. And I thought I I generally agreed with it. I didn't have a problem with what he was saying. I think there's a big hang up with the idea that banks can create things out of thin air or that the government can create things out of thin air. And it's very hard to believe. It seems outrageous. And if I remember correctly, there's a beautiful quote by uh, John Kenneth Galbraith where he says that something so profound as money should have some deep, dark mystery behind it. Make it up. Uh, They write it with a pen and they balance the ledger and it works. And the government does that. And that's what Mr. Mosler's point was. And so I don't disagree with that general thesis. The only part I had a real hard time understanding and I haven't quite got a got an answer to it from the modern monetary people is uh, this very strong insistence that the government creates money. So money is a public
1: monopoly. That's, yeah.
0: Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much. That they have a monopoly on currency. And Ms. Kelton is very specific in her book to always use currency when she says that. And I agree they have a monopoly on currency, but our world doesn't run on currency, it runs on money, which private banks make up willy nilly. And so I'm having, I I have a difficulty reconciling why they're so focused on this monopoly of the currency and kind of not saying anything about about the the private banking system. Have you heard anything? Have you heard any kind of, uh, or is that not even relevant, that kind of my confusion there?
1: Uh, I don't know. Usually from what I see is that, uh, you know, modern monetary theorists they tend to say that, uh, you know, regardless of what the central, regardless of what the private banks are doing, you know, the government can still create uh, cash, uh, you know, they could just print it and, you know, they could spend it. So, you know, regardless of what, at least that's what I, at least that's what I've read. Um, so regardless of what these private banks do, you know, the government can still print this cash and still use it in the economy and you know if there's inflation uh you know the modern monetary theory their solution is to tax it and you know if we tax you know we get money out of the system but i think you know sort of the problem with that is uh especially if you are sort of you know a capitalist libertarian i don't know uh, i don't know about you but that's sort of where i stand personally and uh what they usually say is that taxation will sort of stop resources from getting allocated by the free market instead sort of shift the, uh, the research allocation decision to the government and you know, overall that shift would be a bad thing in the long run, so.
0: Yeah, I'm with you and my that's my kind of preference as well is more a laissez-faire sort of a, a management of the economy but that doesn't work in all eras, unfortunately. That's what I recently learned. It seems like we're moving away from that. Another point, so Okay. So you tax the inflation. I agree. That makes sense. But governments are not run by angels or technocrats. And the problem is, is it's going to be a politician who's in charge. And what politician have you heard recently that says, I'm going to start taxing. I'm going to start raising taxes because this inflation, this economy is running too hot. That doesn't happen. They're not going to raise taxes or, it's gonna be really hard. It's not a simple, hey, inflation, we're gonna tax. That's what a central bank would do. That's, they have that technical ability, right? The lever pulling. Yeah. But if you give the power to the government, that's okay. Politicians <laughs> are gonna love that sweet nectar that comes from the magic money tree. And they're gonna get drunk, they're gonna get addicted. And then we expect them to step in and say, party's over. No, well, after the reelection maybe. Then, then they'll say it oh, well, hmm. <laughs> so exactly I Rather- think that that's the problem so I think the modern monetary theory people I get it and I think it really comes down to where you are politically do you believe government uh, is kind of self-regulating kind of uh the liberal perspective or maybe you're more conservative and you're you don't want to give the power to the government because uh, it's right. it'll be corrupting. So I think that's where we eventually get get to. Got it.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with what you just said. And yes. <laughs> so uh, I know we might be uh, we might be running out of time, but I have two more questions if you're okay with that.
0: My time is worthless. <laughs> so however long
1: you want to stay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sure. So uh, I wanted to ask you, how useful is the Fed funds rate in uh ca- in causing inflation? So you know, one of their uh, sort of the Federal Reserve's magical lever right now is the Fed funds rate, and you know they're sort of at least thinking that it's going to control everything. You know, one of the you know one of the things that I realized after watching uh, you and Jeff Snyder was that you know there's this famous autobiography uh, by uh, I, I don't know the author, but it's the man who knew the life and times of Alan Greenspan, but I think um, yeah yeah yeah, I think the title should be changed to the man who didn't know.
0: <laughs> yes yes <laughs> yes. Uh, I heard I didn't read it, but I heard Sebastian Malaby I bet you, I will bet you one silver coin that Sebastian Mallaby wrote that. I hope uh, that's right. What man. are gold? What are silver prices at right now? Oh my God, have I overextended myself? Uh, the man who knew
1: life. Uh, hold on. Let me uh, let me find this. Yes, oh, I heard it. It is, it is Sebastian Maliby. You got it right. However, I did not bet a silver coin. So uh I have a Someone lot Someone owes me a silver <laughs>
0: coin. Well, I heard great, I heard great things about this book. But go ahead. So yes, so tell me you the book, Greenspan Federal Funds.
1: Yeah, so uh, Greenspan sort of used the federal funds to control uh sort of everything from LIBOR to you know how much banks in the US land. Uh, sort of the central interest rate. And, you know, uh, Jeff Snyder points out that in the 1990s, actually, uh, you know, the central banks and Alan Greenspan admitted this, you know, they sort of lost track of what money is. And, you know, so that's why they shifted from, say, money supply or money demand targeting to uh, federal uh, Fed funds targeting. And so I wanted to ask you, how useful is the Fed funds rate in actually causing inflation?
0: Well, Mr. Snyder would say not at all, that it was destroyed in 2008, the market for federal funds was destroyed thereafter uh, because that was an unsecured lending pool. And therefore, if we are in a period of globalization, if the economy is growing, if the world is one of only return and a little risk, but you know mostly return, and you have confidence in your central banker, you will lend unsecured to Bear Stearns, Merrill Lynch, Lehman Brothers, Absolutely. American International, because you have confidence, yes. everyone, there's no problem. After 2008, uh, no, no. And people realize, whoa, we, we are not lending unsecured again for a while until we have confidence that all this is working again. And there's no confidence of that. And therefore the federal funds rate uh, whereas before it was lively and energetic and something useful, uh, is now just a shell and a husk of its former self, because the banks dare not lend in scale, uh, unsecured. Because you don't have, you don't know what is going on. So how is it, and is it going to cause inflation or control inflation? Well, that was the that was the theory. And uh, Jeff says, no, what happened was that there was a rising tide of liquidity being created by private banks uh, called, and that was given the name of the great moderation because things were going so well. It seemed like moving this this rate around had an impact, but uh, upon reflection, no. And I guess he makes a wonderful point that it's insane because the, the financial system is so crazy complex. And you're telling me 12 people sitting in a boardroom somewhere moving a rate down or up by a quarter of a of a, of a, of a percent is going to move the markets? He says that's bananas. And so, and, but I think perhaps the most important point, what you just said for our audience, if anyone is still listening to me here, going on and on, the Federal Reserve, in the 1990s admitted they couldn't define, identify, measure, or map money. Not an exaggeration. They they didn't know what money had become. It had multiplied like a prism. It used to be something, it went through the prism of the private banking system that was searching for ways to make money. They're banks, they wanna make money. And they created this amazing rainbow of monetary equivalents, And the Federal Reserve's. they said, we don't know. We don't know what money is anymore. And it is our hope that we can affect how they behave by raising this rate up and down. And uh, it turned out to be, it turned out to not be the case that they were able to do that.
1: Got it. And you know, as do as you talk about the Fed funds rate and you know how the how how it doesn't really control bank lending. So I wanted to ask you, now is sort of the interest. So I believe the Bank of England in uh, the UK uh, they target the interest that's paid on excess reserves. So the IOER. And I wanted to ask you if the IOER is moved negative enough, would that be you know something that that could force banks to lend and uh, you know, uh, because sort of, uh, sort of the the opportunity cost of lending is holding these reserves. And you know, if you can make the argument that the IOER is is way too high, especially in the U.S., uh, you know, if you brought that all the way down to say somewhere in the negative, say 50, 100 basis points, you know, and you just kept bringing it more and more into the negative, do you think you know, sort of banks would finally be forced to lend, or do you think? Know, sort of treasury demand will start going down but no that's not possible with what's going on in the repo market so do you get what i'm saying yes
0: yes can you make it negative enough to make people uh lend uh i would say generally no because it would signal that there's something seriously disturbed and wrong with the economy or the people in charge because negative interest rates according to uh mr grant who interviewed mr silla who wrote the uh, interest rates for the last five thousand years of history. Uh, he Sir, said that neg.
1: Hmm? Was that Jim? You know, is that Jim Grant, the Grant Rate Observer guy? Yes. Okay.
0: Uh, he often says that uh, negative interest rates are nominal interest rates are a, a first in five thousand years of human financial history, and so it signifies great disorder, sickness, and uh, making. It more sick, more disturbed, more Alice in Wonderland, I think would uh, tell banks there's something really wrong out there and they'd rather just lose the 1% or whatever it is than lend out into the economy, which is so unhealthy. So I think that would be more of a philosophical uh, than a technical explanation. Mr. Jeff Snyder and Mr. Stephen Van Meter would be able to provide the actual technical explanation of what they would do. Mine is more of a philosophical answer.
1: Got it. So I wanted to ask you to wrap up the podcast. Any last thoughts on you know, what's going to happen? Any last thoughts that you want to tell people? Um...
0: Oh, I want to tell people that there is a glorious, beautiful, golden future and golden age ahead of us as soon as we get out of these terrible, ugly times. Because as those authors I mentioned in the beginning Uh, the stories, the real ones, fiction and nonfiction. If we get out of this successfully, we're going to be united. We're going to believe that we can accomplish anything because we just did. And there will be a new set of rules for the road ahead. People won't agree. I mean, they will, well, people will be upset that there'll be new rules. Well, it wasn't like this before, but there will be rules of how we're gonna govern our society, a new social contract and people and businesses will be able to invest again in the future because they know there's a future that exists. So the good news is there's a great era ahead of us, a really wonderful one, I can't wait to it. There's some ugly times ahead of us. Most people predict that it's gonna be the rest of this decade of unpleasantness and difficulties, but Something should galvanize the society to leave the post-World War II order behind. One that's been around for 80 years doesn't apply to us anymore. There might be, it might be awful. Uh, as Grant Williams writes, there, there will probably be more books written about the next 10 years in the past 10 years than any book since World War II. So it might be very ugly, but I believe we'll make it through as we have for hundreds of years In Anglo-American society, at least, we've gone through much worse than this. We've built, grown, moved forward. Uh, It'll be wonderful again and happy. Just uh, buckle up for the next uh, decade. Got it.
1: Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Emil. It was awesome having you. Uh,
0: You're going to be guiding us. We're going to (laughs) be listening to the voice of a new generation. So you'll, you'll have to be helping us along. So. Thank you very much. I loved it. It was wonderful. This Thank is you. much better than a show I do with Jeff. Uh, and no, uh, think, if uh... you need an intern, you let me know. I'm going <laughs> to join your show.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for Thanks for being on.
0: Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.